There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Opioid Epidemic. In the last two months, almost every guest I've brought onto this show has talked about this issue. From D.C. Police Chief Robert Conti. You know, sometimes we'll see uh, a bad batch of drugs in a community and, you know, now nine or ten people, you know, dead as a result. To Virginia's Attorney General Jason Miares. In the last 12 months, we've lost 108,000 Americans to fentanyl and opioid overdoses. And the outgoing CEO and president of Catholic Charities, Father John Ensler. Fentanyl problems, it's a huge problem, and we deal with that. I have kids I've buried from fentanyl. It's an issue that involves drugs, addiction, and human beings. And it's been devastating communities across the DMV for years, from schools to homes to the street. And while the opioid epidemic has been here for a while, it hasn't remained stagnant. It's changed. The types of drugs have shifted from heroin to fentanyl to analog types of fentanyl. And now we're seeing a new series of drugs enter this illicit drug supply that is catching medical centers and treatment centers off guard. One of the more concerning substances is an animal tranquilizer and sedative called xylazine. I took a trip down to the Gaithersburg campus of the National Institute of Standards and Technology where they're testing drug samples. And in Maryland, they're finding that nearly half of the drug supply contains xylazine, which causes serious wounds and complicates treatment. In order to really figure out where we stand in this opioid epidemic and what xylazine means for us here in the DMV, I sat down with Maryland's Special Secretary for Opioid Response, Emily Keller, and the Medical Director at the Center for Harm Reduction Services at Maryland's Department of Health, Dr. Malik Burnett. These two are at the helm of this crisis, and they explain where we stand. Emily and Malik, welcome to the show. Hey. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for bringing us on. We are here at NIST. We are learning about a really serious topic, fentanyl and xylazine, a new drug that's kind of on the scene that we're seeing more and more of, especially in Maryland. But what exactly is xylazine? It goes by the street name Trank. Some people call it zombie drug. I think a lot of people have questions about what exactly this is. So Malik, would you want to start us off here? You're the chemist. You're the scientist here. What is xylazine? Sure. Uh, So xylazine is a veterinary sedative that is used mostly in veterinary medicine to put animals to sleep started to become incorporated into the illicit opiate supply in the state of Maryland and very much is part of uh, what we've discovered through the RAD program here at the state level, which allows us to surveil the illicit drug supply and get a better understanding of what's in it. Mm. So basically, it's for animals, not necessarily for humans. That is correct. What are its side effects on humans? Uh, You know, this is um, a great question. Obviously, it still has those same sedative effects on humans. The reason why it's a great question is because it's certainly not studied in humans. It's not a sedative that has human use whatsoever. And so we uh, don't have good data, good scientific data to be able to describe not only the effects in you know large quantities at a human level or the side effects as well, like what sort of negative implications come from that. There's certainly a lot of correlative data that shows a higher incidence of injection drug-related wounds Mm. um, with 
individuals who have been exposed to xylazine, but whether there are mechanisms of action that kind of, you know, would define why those wounds are occurring, we still haven't gotten a good understanding of that. Mm. And Emily, just a few weeks ago or a few months ago, you know, you were named Maryland's Special Secretary for Opioid Response. How have you seen xylazine in your first few weeks at this position? It's pretty scary. Even hearing the numbers here today, you know, every time we think we're like, okay, so we have a heroin epidemic, now we have a fentanyl epidemic, now we have xylazine being introduced in this. So I'm appreciative of the RAB program. I think we'll be able to get real-time data out into our communities so people know exactly what they're taking, which is important. Uh, but I think this is going to continue being a growing concern because it already is in the northeastern states and it's heading this way and mm. across the country. And do we know where it really uh, originates? I mean, it just sounds like it kind of popped out of you know nowhere. Where where does it come from? Again, these are tough questions, but do we know? No, I mean I think it's a hard question to answer. I mean you know we've got data that suggests that there are transnational drug traffickers that have incentive to put all sorts of different um, substances into the illicit drug supply. But from a direct sourcing, you know we certainly know that it is a active sedative from the veterinary medicine supply. So you could have some of that potentially entering into the illicit street supply. But, you know, where specifically, you know, the xylazine is being introduced is unclear. We've talked a lot about scientific definitions here, but this is playing out on the street, you know, and impacting humans and and people. Can either of you talk to, you know, how it's impacting, you know, communities on a community level? Is it shocking people? Is it scaring people? It is. I can speak to Hagerstown and Washington County. We were seeing a really growing increase of the wounds. Mm. And that causes many more problems when you're trying to get someone into treatment because they can't go into a treatment setting while they have open wounds that are that severe. So yes, it's alarming, but unfortunately, we're not seeing it stopping the people who are already using. Yeah. I mean, I would add in here that, you know, our medical system currently isn't well designed to take care of patients with chronic wounds. You have wound care centers that exist. They generally take care of your traditional sort of medical-related wounds, venous stasis ulcers, cardiovascular-related injuries, even non-healing surgical wounds. But as Emily pointed out, there is stigma associated with injection drug use and the wounds created from injection drug use. And then the management of those wounds is a lot more involved in terms of being able to move somebody through a wound care system. There's inherent challenges given the scope and size of the wounds that we're seeing, particularly with this, uh, to get those people through the system properly. And not to get too graphic here, but can you describe what the wounds are? I mean, we're talking about just a simple prick injection site or something bigger? No, we're talking about pretty big wounds here, multi-layered through the epidermis, the dermis, into the muscular planes and fascia, uh, exposing both bone and actual muscles, tendons, very, very significant deep wounds. Amputation level. Very much in the framework of amputation level. Mm. Reminds me that, you know, Narcan, which a lot of people see as kind of the catch-all solution, quick Mm -hmm. solution to saving someone's life if they've taken fentanyl. Mm -hmm. Am I right to say that doesn't necessarily work with xylazine? So I would expand on this framework of conversation a bit, right? So xylazine is not an opiate. And so, therefore, it is not going to work with an opiate antagonist like naloxone. However, it is important that everyone understands when they're administering naloxone, the goal is to reestablish respiratory drive, to reestablish breathing. A lot of people conflate this with waking back up and returning to normal, right? And so these are two different things, and it's important to be able to 
set the expectation in advance of using naloxone that your goal is to restore somebody's ability to breathe and then also get uh, advanced you know, medical support. If somebody is breathing after you've administered the naloxone, they may still be sedated under the effects of xylazine. But as if they're breathing, then you have, you know, increased the likelihood that they could have a positive outcome as you go about the business of getting advanced life support. And so this educational piece is critical because people shouldn't get the message that they shouldn't use naloxone. They should still use naloxone. And so we mentioned naloxone. You know, how do you actually use it and where do you get it? The most popular way to do it is intranasally through a a nasal atomizer or a spray. Currently, there is a standing order, so anybody who um, goes into a pharmacy at all can get naloxone from the pharmacist. Without a prescription? Without Mm -hmm. a prescription. Then we can talk about how to use it. In so far as you encounter somebody who you suspect may have had an opioid overdose, you definitely want to check to see whether or not they're breathing. And then if you... uh, can confirm that they're not breathing. You can administer naloxone. You start with one nostril. If you have the nasal atomizer, you put it in one nostril. You wait about two minutes, see whether or not there's a response there. If no response, you can use the other nostril, administer it. Usually there's two atomizers in one kit. You know, what your goal is to see if somebody uh, has returned to respiratory function. So if they're breathing and they're still like sedated, you could turn them on their side in kind of the emergency rescue position. So in the event that they throw up, they're not going to, you know, asphyxiate on their own uh, vomitus. And what if you're scared of hurting yourself? You know, I think people associate fentanyl with being deadly just to the touch. Yeah. You know, is that a concern or or not? You know, are you safe to do it? Generally, uh, that is a concern that is overblown. I think it was a um, tactic that was put out by the uh, law enforcement agencies at the time in which they were fearing that people were going to overdose by touching fentanyl. Generally not so much the case. You got to really have a lot of fentanyl to be able to get uh, absorption through the skin such that you could have an overdose. So, you know, the goal here, if you're encountering somebody in any particular environment, is to be able to render uh, aid. Uh, first aid. And part of that is, you know, using naloxone, as we described. So, you know, you shouldn't necessarily hesitate to get uh, help for people who need it, because that's how we're going to save lives. We'll be right back. People are just learning about this. What is Maryland doing to try to stave off this, you know, larger opioid crisis, fentanyl crisis, but again, also this addition of xylazine that has these difficult, scary, and traumatic and serious wounds. Well, we do have a xylazine work group who has been working to put together a report should be released in the next several weeks. And uh, they're going to have their findings, what they found, and also their recommendations. And even what we saw here today, the RAD program, being able to see exactly what is in our drug supply. That way, our harm reduction teams can go out and spread that message and adjust accordingly. And so let's talk about this RAD program. We've kind of mentioned it, name dropped it here a couple couple (laughs) times. But let's go into the details. You know, what does the RAD program do? Yeah, so the RAD program, RAD stands for Rapid Analysis of Drugs. It's a partnership program with the National Institutes of Standards and Technology and the Maryland Department of Health to be able to analyze street samples, so individuals who bring in samples to syringe service programs around the state, 
have those samples sent to NIST to be able to get analyzed using analytical chemistry methods, which I won't describe in detail here for this audience. We wouldn't understand otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in order to be able to get a good sense of what's happening in the street supply. And can you talk about why it's important to dedicate so much resources to figuring out what's out on the street? I think education is key. One of the slides we saw earlier that I thought was staggering was how heroin is only in 1.5% of the samples. But if you talk to people on the street, they think they're getting heroin. So I I think that education level alone is is so important and to be able to get in front of the trends that are happening so we can adjust our strategies to help combat them and help get people the help that they need. Yeah, I would would just add on, you know, some of the things that we're doing in the RAD program are kind of innovative in their own ways of advancing the science around understanding forensic drug analysis. And so, you know, being able to effectively quantify what's in particular drug supplies to be able to provide awareness around public health messaging in the event that you've run into what we, you know, have previously described as bad batches in the community, being able to better define what's in those and, you know, further that education that Emily was talking about uh, are, you know, really some of the at least scientific goals associated with this in addition to the public health goals. And what's difficult is a lot of these drugs are illegal. So there's kind of a legal aspect here. How do you navigate the legal side of illegal drugs and the health and mental health side of it? How do you do that? You can't arrest your way out of this. I mean, obviously that doesn't work. You know what I mean? This is a public health crisis. It's not a criminal crisis. I just, I won't build my soapbox, but that drives me crazy. It, It clearly does not work. You know, and of course there are some illegal drugs and, you know, you're talking about trafficking, but when we're talking about someone who's struggling with a substance use disorder, you can't put them in jail and think that's going to fix them. It just doesn't work. Yeah. And I think even as we're doing the RAD program, uh, it clearly illustrates this uh, phenomenon called the iron law of prohibition. Mm -hmm. So insofar as you prohibit particular substances, you're certainly not going to stop the illicit demand for said substances and people are going to intentionally innovate their way around the prohibitions that you're creating. And mm. so, you know, that that is what we're seeing in the RAD program, right? We're seeing an evolution of the illicit drug supply uh, where people are creating new substances that uh, can circumnavigate the scheduling of particular drugs to create drugs that are not scheduled but have similar active uh, ingredient effects as, you know, the scheduled drugs. But... Uh, are able to avoid and now are technically not illegal. And so, you know, if we're taking a strategy in which we're, you know, putting prohibition as the primary goal or the primary, you know, tool that we're using to combat this, then you're going to continue to see the evolution of the drug market and we're just going to see more and more harm done without actually solving the problem. And is xylazine almost an example uh, of that, right? Because we had heroin and we had fentanyl and then we had different types of Uh, like analog fentanyl types back to fentanyl and now we're seeing all these different types is added in to these opioids xylazine and even others right yeah yeah i mean it's you know the catch-all phrase that's uh used now is called novel psychoactive substances nps and so this is definitively a byproduct of prohibition right so the reason why we are analytical chemists or illicit chemists have created all of these various substances is because they wanted to avoid criminal prosecution, right? And that created all these substances that we now see in the being discovered in the RAD program. It's kind of like, you know, you're playing whack-a-mole almost, right? And so that's why we've implemented harm reduction-based services to be able to meet the people 
where they're at, provide them with the support that they need. Because by and large, when you talk to people who use drugs, they're probably using drugs to cope with something else that's going on in their life. Mm. And so, you know, being able to help uh, one elucidate that, develop rapport, reconnect that individual back into community are all parts of the harm reduction strategy and philosophy. And that works a lot better than arresting people. And Emily, you were mayor of Hagerstown before coming into this position. Um, You're on the ground, you're connected with the people. You know, what's really motivating you as you step into this, you know, new role in combating a a really tough issue? So my motivation actually came several years ago. Uh, Back in 2016, uh, my best friend had a substance use disorder, and I watched this system that we're talking about fail her all the time. I mean, she kept getting locked up for 90 days. And I kept pleading with the judges, you know, she doesn't need 90 days in jail, she needs treatment. And I decided instead of sitting around and complaining about it, I was going to run for office and try to do something about it. Unfortunately, midway through my initial campaign, she did lose her life to an overdose. Mm. To me, um, you know, losing my best friend from the age of five at the age of 30 was the most devastating time of my life. But I had to use that, you know, I, I couldn't help her. But there were so many people like her that were struggling, and that just lit the fire in me. I made a promise to her I'd be loud, and uh, here I am almost seven years later and got appointed to this position. So Mm. it's deeply personal to me. Clearly, you can tell by the way we speak about things. This is a doctor. I am not. (laughs) But uh, this is definitely my my heart's work and uh, my passion. And it sounds like it's an issue that needs resources, right? needs money. And money comes from the government in these sorts of issues. Is there enough money going towards it? You know, what needs to happen? I mean, is there ever enough money? (laughs) I I think, you know, with the change of administration, we're all very hopeful. It's a hopeful time in Maryland. Um, I think the more administration is dedicated to saving lives and focusing on this issue. He just increased the budget for substance use by $429 million, which is huge, 40% increase. Uh, So I think, is it enough money? We'll see. But I know and am, am excited that we have an administration that is focused on using evidence-based practices to get through this issue. Statistically, there's someone listening now who either knows someone who has been affected uh, by opiates or is currently you know, addicted. What can people do? Where can people turn? You know, what are some quick, I don't want to say quick steps, but how can people get help if they need it? It is key for, one, you to treat somebody with the same compassion and concern that you would have if they had a diagnosis of cancer or if they had any other sort of medical condition, right? The stigma associated with uh, substance use disorders is prolific and everybody knows somebody who's affected by substance use disorders and treating that person like a human being is critical as a first order priority. But then, you know, talking with them about the various medications that are very successful for dealing with opiate use disorder, particularly methadone and buprenorphine or suboxone, are very, very effective at both reducing overdose mortality and even emergency room visits. And, you know, currently the law has just changed as recently as last month to allow any provider in the state of Maryland who has a DEA license to be able to write for suboxone or buprenorphine. And so you can go now, in theory, to your primary care provider and they can provide you with the medications that you need. Or if you're not necessarily interested in treatment at this time, you know, being able to go to, you know, any of the syringe service programs around the state, we've got 22 of them now, to be able to just get access to harm reduction services and be able to talk with a friendly face who is meeting you where you're at in order to be able to get you into a safer position than where you are Mm. uh, is, you know, another step that you can take. 
And I think another topic here is addiction, right? I mean, I think addiction is stigmatized. Oh, you're an addict, you can't control it. But it's also a medical condition that needs to be treated with uh, medical help, right? Is that another aspect here? Yeah, I mean, I practice addiction medicine um, every day. Really what we're talking about mostly that's really does a lot for this patient population is reestablishing them in the community, mm. right? Like being able to ensure that they have adequate support systems, both inside and outside the healthcare system, to be able to ensure that they're not alone. Or if, you know, they're dealing with adversity that comes with life, that they have people and strategies to go with other than drugs, right? Because mm. drugs are a great coping mechanism. And, you know, what we're, we're trying to do is ensure that people have the skill sets necessary to, to avoid turning to drugs when life gets tough. And Emily, you know, the opioid response in Maryland, this kind of task force came out of an executive order from then Governor Hogan, Larry Hogan. Now Westmore is the new governor. You know, where does this response stand? And should Marylanders have assurance that it's going to stay and, you know, keep doing this work? Well, I would certainly hope so, because I resigned from my position as the mayor to become the special <laughs> secretary of opioid response. So unless unless there's something going on that I don't know about, uh, it's definitely going to stand. I can tell you that the Opioid Operational Command Center has a strategic planning session coming up in two weeks where we're going to look at big picture of in a perfect world how can we solve all of the problems? And we're going to take that to Governor Moore and hopefully get a green light on what this looks like for the next six months, the next year, the next six years, the next 10 years. So I think it'll be very positive changes that you'll see, and it's here to stay. And so we've all seen this, you know, in the news, big companies getting sued, basically, for opioids and getting people addicted not giving proper information to people, right? And that those settlements have given states a lot of money. You know, where is that money going in Maryland? So... There's a lot of money coming in, you're right. And this is a time where we can make really just incredible changes here within the state of Maryland and all over the country. Uh, we do have an advisory council that is overseeing kind of the process of what this looks like. And then the Opioid Operational Command Center will oversee grant programs and things. Some of the money is going direct to municipalities and counties. Uh, the majority of it is coming into a very large fund. So um, there are certain things that we can spend the money on, certain things that we can't. It all has to go toward opioid restitution. So this is going to be transformational change in, in the state of Maryland. And uh, you'll be seeing much more to come over the next several weeks and months as the money starts coming in. And how much money? You said a lot, but what's a lot? Uh, well, as of right now, $400 million, But there are still settlements coming in, you know, over the next several months and years. And, you know, I think that's something that also we haven't touched on yet, but a lot of people got addicted under false pretenses. I would say that people were misled, which is why you have a settlement, right? Yes. Like people, there was not, it was not a thing we didn't know. There was um, a effort on the part of the companies responsible for ensuring the distribution of opiates to the system to reassure providers and the general public that these medications were safe, right? And that is a distinct difference than, uh, you know, being unaware of the risks associated with this, using opiates, right? And so what we're doing now is, one, taking the restitution money that we have from the settlements around this you know, misleading process uh, and, you know, restoring the communities that were harmed. I will add when the information from these lawsuits come out, the things that were, were said under oath, it's horrifying. I mean, these companies have admitted that they knew the substances were addictive and they continue to 
to market as non-addictive. I mean, they have admitted that now. So now, you know, that money is going to pay for the damage that they created. Can we climb our way out of it? I think we can. Is it going to be an easy process? No, because it took us 20 years to get here. Thank you both for your time, for helping me and our, our listeners really try to understand this issue and better address it. Thank awesome. you. Thanks so much for having us. Before we go, on February 28th, the FDA actually started to restrict imports of xylazine, citing an uptick in overdose deaths where xylazine was present. And that'll do it for us today on the DMV Download. Thank you so much for listening. If time allows, give us some stars and a review. This show is brought to you by WTOP News. Listen on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, and 103.9 FM in Frederick, Maryland. Online at WTOP.com and, of course, on the WTOP News app. Have a great week. We'll talk Wednesday.